this morning. And uh, if Will looks a little tired, let me tell you why. Uh, he has just finished his first semester as the campus minister at RUF, with RUF, Reform University Fellowship at Austin P. And um, what little I know would tell me that that's probably got to be one of, if not your hardest semester as a campus minister, brand new in the area, trying to figure out the campus, uh, trying to figure out the lay of the land, and, as though that's not enough, uh, as part of our presbytery, the Nashville Presbytery, the poor guy is also at the same time studying for his licensure and ordination exams. And friends, that is an ordeal. <laughs> uh, I, I'm still healing <laughs> 20 odd years later. Um, anyway, Will, glad you're here. Come on up. Good morning, CBC. Thank you for the privilege to be up here. And um, yeah, it's a trial. Speaking of trials, the ordination exams are definitely a trials. Uh, James, the book that we're looking at is a book of trials. If you remember from last time, whenever I have the privilege of being up here, I'm gonna, we're going to be going kind of verse by verse through James. If you want to turn, if you have a Bible, you can turn to James 1. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing to a community that is experiencing trials. Um, trials, as James sees them, they're not like this pass and fail kind of thing from God, but it's actually, trials are the, place, the places where God works to mature us and to grow us up into people that love God, love Him, and love one another. Our text today is the first trial in the book, in this letter that James writes to this community of Christians, and it is a trial that we can all relate to. It's the trial of lowliness and riches. Let's read. James 1, starting at verse 9. <clears throat> James writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also... Will the rich, the rich man, fade away in the midst of his pursuits? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The grass withers, the flower fades, we fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, set us free this morning to love you, serve you, and love each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in seminary, my wife and I took advantage of this great deal where um, spouses could take classes for free. And we actually got like a whole, my wife got a, a whole master's degree out of this basically for free. It's basically my degree that I have minus the Greek and Hebrew languages. So that was kind of cool. And it meant that we ended up taking some of the same classes, a lot of the same classes together, although we were taking it like at different times. So I would take a class and then a year later or two later, she would take the class. So there was one class that I took um, a couple of years before she did, and she um, let me read. What was cool is we got to read each other's papers, help talk through stuff together. It was really fun. So she let me read this paper of hers for a class I'd already taken, and I read it, and I thought, ugh, this is not a very good paper. Um, <laughs> so I very politely offered her some suggestions. You should, you should do this instead of this. You should talk about this and not this. Um, and she didn't listen to me, and she handed the paper in anyway. She didn't care about my opinion. In the back of my mind, I was like, yes, I can't wait till this paper comes back. 
And I started preparing myself for being like this very sympathetic hand on the shoulder as she tells me how right I was the whole time. Um, so I could look smart and humble when this happens. <laughs> so um, a couple weeks go by, she gets it back, and of course the professor gave her an A on the paper. He even wrote some crud on the top, like great paper, Jung Mi, or something like that. <laughs> and she got A's on everything. Um, so then I went back and I scrounged and I found that paper that I had written for that class, and lo and behold, I had gotten a C on the paper. <laughs> and then I went back and looked at the, uh, the grade on the computer about what was my grade, and I actually got a C, my grade for the class was a C plus. She, of course, got an A in the class. Um, so things did not turn out as I thought they would. Uh, maybe I'm not as smart or as humble as I think I am. Um, so when I gave that original paper to, to Jungmi, to, um, when I gave my comments on the original paper to Jungmi, Jungmi didn't care what I thought about her paper, and it's a good thing that she didn't. Um, she knew the only person whose opinion mattered was that professor, the one that was handing out the, the grade. In the eyes of the one that mattered, the, her paper stood the test, and she got an A. And it's a good thing she didn't care about my opinion. Well, there's a similar thing going on in our text today. The people that James is writing to, they are tempted, they're being tempted to view riches and the lack of riches, abundance and scarcity, the way that the world does. That riches are the way to life. Riches are life. Abundance is life. And they don't want to be lacking. They want to be full. And if they only had riches, they could, if they could only get what they desire, then they would finally get the good life. They would finally have real, true, full life. But James and God have a very different view of the value of lowliness and riches. And James wants his audience, and he wants us to see that riches and lack of riches, he wants, to, he wants us to see these things through God's eyes. Um, the big idea for our text is that we find life in Jesus Christ alone and in nothing else. We find fullness, we find peace, we find security, we find completeness only as we trust and only in Jesus Christ and nowhere else in this world. And if, if this is true, if life is found in Jesus Christ alone, then we should respond in three ways. And these three ways are our three points. The lowly should boast in their exaltation. The rich should boast in their humiliation. And point three, we should love the Lord Jesus Christ. So the response is going to be our points. The first response to the fact that life is found in Jesus Christ alone is our verse 9. Look with me in verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So James loves kind of jolting us with these paradoxical, ironic kind of statements. He says that the lowly, the low should boast in their exaltation, in their being raised up. Now, who is James talking about here, and what is he telling this kind of person to do? Well, first of all, it's a Christian, right? He calls him a brother, and that word could be brother or sister. It's just his general term for brethren. So, you know, we call each other brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. This is what we do as Christians because we have the same father. He's God. He's our father. He's talking to a Christian. He's talking to a believer, and he's talking to a lowly believer, now, we don't use that adjective lowly a lot. What does lowly mean? Who is he talking to? And how are we even maybe lonely? Lowly. Lowly means ins insignificant. Lowly means low. Lowly means weak. It means inferior. It means that you are, you're lacking. You're not full. You're not strong. It means that you're low. And now many of the people 
that received this letter originally, this would have really resonated with them because many of them were new Christians that had been ostracized from their communities. And because of this, they were, because of being marginalized, they've become lowly in their communities. They've, their power has been taken away. I mean, objectively, they're weak. Objectively, they're, power, they're powerless. They're insignificant and they're inferior. This is how their community, this is how the world would have viewed them, lowly. But also, like inside, they would have felt lonely. Their inside experience would have been loneliness because they would be suffering because of being ostracized. They would have been suffering financially. They would have been suffering socially. They would have been suffering relationally. So this word, lowly, this, this word to this lowly brothers and sisters would have really resonated with James's original audience. But who, who would James be speaking to today? How does this translate to us? How does this translate to um, us in the 21st century in Clarksville? Well, he's definitely speaking to the poor. He's definitely speaking to those that lack money. He's speaking to those that lack security and power. Um, he's speaking to, to victims of systemic injustice, people that are suffering from systemic abuse. That would be the closest parallel to the original audience. Those that lack justice, those that lack agency to even help to get justice. Um, but he's also speaking to those who have experienced abuse and neglect growing up just in general. To those that, you know, abuse and neglect growing up leaves you lacking. It leaves you lacking security, um, inside security, inside, outside a sense of security. You, sometimes people can feel broken beyond repair. They're lacking and they're, they're not, they don't feel complete. Um, he's speaking to all those that lack vital relationships. How are people that lack um, spouses or um, friends, children, they're often viewed by the world as lacking and lowly, and they feel lacking, they can feel lacking and lonely too, lowly. Um, if you lack mental health, if you lack physical health, you're lowly in the eyes of the world, and you feel lowly. Um, a parent that stays home to care for their children I've gotten a small taste of this myself, but it can feel really lowly. It can feel really lowly. You know, there's people that are out there talking about changing the world, inspiring people, and you're changing diapers all day. How lowly can that feel and insignificant? Um, John me the other day was like, <laughs> John me the other day was like, I can't believe I didn't do anything all day long. I feel so lazy. I was like, babe, you, you did the most hardest, most important job all day. Come on. But I know how it can feel so insignificant and weak. And lowly. Where in your life do you experience being lowly, inferior, weak, powerless? Where are you experiencing the opposite of fullness, the opposite of peace, the opposite of security? Where do you feel the opposite of life? This is your trial of lowliness. And James wants his readers, and James wants me and you, to do lowliness well, this trial of lowliness. He wants us to get through it well, growing. Because what is your temptation? It's my temptation. What's your temptation when this trial of lowliness, when we meet it? Joyful boasting is not my natural response. Um, but I'll tell you what is. Bitterness, grumbling, those are my natural responses to lacking. To complain to God, well, I Actually, don't complain to God. Actually, complain to other people. So he's the last person I'd bring my grumbling to for some reason. 
Because actually, it's actually a good thing to bring your complaints to God. God wants us to bring our sadness. He wants us to bring our grief. He wants us to bring even our anger to him about what's going on in our lives. He actually wrote psalms for us to help us be mad at him well. He likes that. But grumbling is different. Um, grumbling comes from a place of bitter distrust. Bringing my anger to God, that's actually trusting. That's actually great trust to bring to God because I know he's not going to leave me when I bring my anger to him. But grumbling comes from a place of bitter distrust. It's assuming that God's got it out for me, assuming that God is taking pleasure in my lack, in my suffering. That is the soil for grumbling. Grumbling is what the Israelites did in the wilderness. Do you remember how they saw the Lord? They saw the Lord save them by these 10 plagues in Egypt. They saw the Lord save them by um, swallowing up Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And then the first time, after all these salvations, over and over and over and over and over and over again, after all these salvations, the first time they lacked food, they grumbled. They even said, they even said that they thought that God was trying to kill them. Instead of using, instead of, they had a trial of lack and lowliness, and how did they respond? God, you're against me. Instead of, this is a trial that is meant to bring me closer to him, that is to reveal the places in my life where I don't trust him, and to grow. And this actually, this became the whole theme of their journey, right, was grumbling. They never learned a lesson from it. They never grew in this trial. We're going to see there's more to this verse in um, a few minutes, but here's a question that James raises for us, raises for you and for me. Is there anywhere in your life where you have turned bitter to God because you lack? Is there anything that you've never gotten in this life that you're bitter towards God that you've never gotten it? Is there anything that's been taken away from you in this life, be it a thing, a relationship, a person, um, something more intangible? And you, the seeds are there, the soil is there, and the seed is there, and your bitterness has begun to grow. This, when this is happening, this is the trial of lowliness. Here's some homework for you, uh, application, very easy application. On the way home from church today, or when next time you have lunch with somebody, with a Christian, or your family, whoever, um, ask this question, where, is there any place, if there was one place where this bitterness would grow up, where would it be in your life? Where would it be in my life? Have this discussion and think about what might be a good place where this soil is ripe and the seed is there. One of the saddest, because one of the saddest and most frustrating things is to see people, especially Christians, who are stuck on something that's happened to them, something that's been taken from them, something that they never got, and it comes, they get stuck on it, and it comes to define them. And they use this as evidence that God is against them, and they complain to everybody. They might not even say God's name, but they complain to everybody around them, and their whole life comes to be dominated and, and orbits around this lack that they have. I had a coworker when I, was, when I lived in Korea, I had a coworker friend at the school I was teaching at, and he was a pretty bitter person. And he was American. Um, as I got to know him, he said that he grew up a uh, Christian, and I got to know his story a little bit more, and he said that when he was in his 20s, he had um, some pretty bad depression, and he asked God if he, God would take away the depression. And he, I guess he asked God for several times, or for some length of time, and it didn't go away. 
And so he said, because of this, he turned away from Jesus. He's no long, he would no longer follow Jesus if Jesus wouldn't take away his depression. Now, here is an example where someone is really suffering. This is, uh, depression is a serious thing, and it's a serious lack. And he told me um, you know, a little bit about his life. Is he had a difficult life. But Jesus never said that in this life that he would do away with our suffering. Jesus never said in this life that he would do away with our lack and the things, that we, the things that we want and some of the things that we even need to live an abundant life. In fact, there are several places where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, your suffering is going to increase. Your lack is going to increase if you follow me. Is there anywhere in your life where these seeds of grumbling are growing or have planted themselves? Or maybe you're just a full-on big old grumbler already. Maybe this is who you define you. Well, James wants you, this is, here's good news for you. James wants you, he wants us to grow in this trial by rejoicing. He wants us to rejoice, to boast in our exaltation. What does that mean, to boast in our exaltation? Well, to get to the answer to this, look in verse 12, if you have your Bibles there, it might be able to put on the screen, but look in verse 12. We're going to cheat ahead a little bit. Um, here's a picture of a man who is being exalted as he is receiving the crown of life. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, when you think about crowns, you're probably thinking about jewels and gold. Maybe thinking about a TV. I think there's a TV show called The Crown. You might be thinking about that. But this crown is not that kind of crown. This crown is a laurel wreath. This crown is given not to royalty, but this crown is given to victors in athletic competitions back then. Uh, we have this at the Olympics, right? The victorious athlete stands and is, um, is um, exalted onto the tallest pedestal, right, at the Olympics. And then they give them the wreath. It's a medal now, but they give them a wreath. And Paul uses the exact, exact same language in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's right, he writes that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's the same word here for crown. But we, an imperishable. So as a crown, this imperishable wreath represents our participation in Jesus. He's the one that wins the, the crown. He's the one that is the victor. And he shares that with us. And it's the crown of life. This is the crown of life. You don't get this crown until you die or Jesus returns. We don't get this crown in this life. This is the crown of resurrection eternal life. And it's then, and it's only then, after we die or Jesus returns, this is when you will be complete and whole. This is when life, this is when you will be living the abundant life, is when Jesus returns. This is when it happens. It doesn't happen before. You will never be complete in this life. You will never be full. You will always suffer. You will always be suffering in this life until Jesus returns. Objectively, you're going to receive this crown, and objectively, everyone is going to hear God say about you and to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You're not going to be lowly anymore in the eyes of anyone. Subjectively, everything that's sad is going to come untrue. Everything, anything that is, has a hint of suffering or sadness is going to come untrue when Jesus returns only. For all, and this crown is for all Christians. This is for anyone that trusts in Jesus. All you have to do is trust in Jesus. This crown is for you. 
What boasting in your exaltation looks like is living in light of that future, that that is going to be me, that is going to be us. Later, James talks about, like, what does this have to do with relationships in the church, with relationships with each other? Right now, he's talking about us, you individually. You, you are living in light of the, your future exaltation, and that makes you say, this light momentary, this suffering hurts, but it's nothing compared to what will happen when Jesus returns. It hurts, but it's nothing like what is going to happen when Jesus returns. All of our hope, Christian, is in the future, is in Jesus coming. If your hope is not there, it doesn't make any sense. Like, Jesus, like Paul said, we should be pitied among every, above everybody else. Our second point, if, we are to, if the lowly are supposed to boast in their exaltation, his next point is that the rich are to boast in their humiliation. Um, we often think of trials as negative, you know, we often think of trials as negative things, things that hurt. They are, but they're also places where we get good things. They're places of abundance. The opposite, being the opposite of lowly, being rich, that is a trial too. Your money is a trial. The money that you have is a trial. What are you going to do with it? Your posi- like the position, you know, the power that you have as a parent, the power that you have as a boss, the power that you have in your family, with your friends. What are you going to do with that power? God's given it to you to serve him and love him and love others. What are you going to do with it? The same thing with riches. Look with me in verse 10 and 11. The lowly brother brother is supposed to his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now here specifically, James uses the Greek word for riches. He's talking about riches. He's talking about material possessions. He's talking about money, houses, cars, toys, um, savings account, uh, Pokemon collection, Beanie Baby collection, (laughs) retirement accounts. He's talking about this as well as, you know, all the privileges and all the power that comes with riches. Now, I said a moment ago that we're all in some way lowly, um, but let me maybe challenge us here, if you don't think this already, that you are rich. And James is being materialistic here. Let's be, I mean, materialistically, you are rich. What I mean is that if you put your salary into one of those calculators online that kind of compares you to the rest of the world, you are way up here. Um, now, I know there may be uh, an exception. I'll put an asterisk on that. There may be some people here that are not rich. They're actually very poor. But majority of us in here, if not all of us, we are rich, um, especially compared to James's original audience. We were way richer than the poor people there. We're probably richer than the rich people in James's audience. Um, most, of, most, if not all of us, have never had to worry about food. People in James's audience, they have to worry about their food. Where are they going to eat? We've, I've never had to worry about that. Compared to history, compared to James's audience, we are rich. And so this is talking to you, and this is talking to me. The rich, James says, and this is you and me, the rich, too, are in the midst of a trial like the lowly, but they're tempted not to live life revolving around the thing that they lack, but their lives are tempted to be revolving around the things that they have. They're tempted to rejoice in, to boast in, to trust in their riches, And in the midst of this trial that they experience, what does James alert the rich to remember? 
Look with me in verse um, 10 and 11. He says it five times. What is he telling them to remember? He says, like a flower of the grass, he will fade away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What does he want the rich man to remember, the, you and I to remember? That we are going to die. What's fading away is not his possessions. What's fading away is you. <laughs> He's talking about your death. He's talking about my death. And there's an aspect to living well in the present with my present possessions. There's an aspect of living well that I have to remember that I am going to die, that I am going to fade away. And that all of these things, my savings account, money, they're all going to be loose from my dead fingers. You're going to have your possessions for a few years. You're going to have your security, for, your security quote, for a few years. And then, you're not, and then you're going to die and you're going to lose them. And they are not going to protect you. They are not going, your, your riches, they do not give you security. They do not protect you. You're actually just as vulnerable as the lowly. You're just as vulnerable as the flower in the field. Don't you feel, I don't know, part of me feels this way, but do you not feel that the more, this is how I feel, the more money in my bank account, the bigger my house is, the newer my technology is that I have, um, that somehow death is pushed back a little bit. The, the newer the stuff, the more the stuff, the more money I have. You know, why is it that we go, when we feel bad, when we feel so bad, going shopping feels so good? <laughs> pushing back those feelings, pushing back this, this, um, this general feeling that I might, so, that something is wrong here. There's something about money and possessions that brings us this security, brings us this joy, that we feel a little less vulnerable to death. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 12, and I wonder if James is, has this very parable in mind. Here, this, is what Je- this is all Jesus talking. Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The rich man in this parable failed the test of abundance. He failed the test of riches. He didn't endure in the trial. He didn't use his riches. <coughs> he didn't use this trial in order to become a more gentle, kind, generous person. He failed the test, and then he died. And what's ironic is that probably everyone around him was so envious. Look at that guy, dude. He's got it, he's got it made. He's got such a nice life. He's got a, such an abundant life. I wish I was like him. I wish I had a house like that. I wish I had a life like that. This man was no one to be envious of. He lived a, a futile life, and then he died. 
What does it mean to be rich towards God? It means to boast in your humiliation. It means living knowing that you die and you lose your stuff. It's future, or again, this is future oriented. It's knowing that this stuff is going to be taken from me when I die, and so I don't live for it. In the car ride home, why don't you ask your, I give you permission, I charge you, ask someone, what is it that you feel like keeps you, that keeps you uh, safe from death? What is the possession? What is the relationship? What is the person that you feel in your life keeps you away from death, keeps you safe from death? The Christian, the rich Christian, is to boast knowing that all of this, I'm going to be humiliated, which means that all my stuff is going to be stripped from me. I'm going to be humiliated in the sense of all of my stuff is going to be gone, and it's just going to be me. Boasting is knowing, even celebrating that these, these things don't save me. Jesus does. These things don't deliver me from death. Jesus delivers me from death. These things don't bestow onto me the crown of life. Jesus bestows on me the crown of life. This is the Savior that we should live for. This is the Savior that we should love, not this stuff. And if this is true, this is our third point, third short short point, is that we should love Jesus. In verse 12, the crown of life is for those who love God. What's ironic, here's what's interesting. What's ironic about the lowly and the rich in James 1 is that they both are tempted to believe the same thing. If I just have this, everything will be okay. If I just have this thing, everything will be okay. If I just have this person, everything will be okay. If I just have this relationship, everything will be okay. Or maybe it's something more intangible. What is it for you? A good way to find this is by answering this question. What is it that if God never ends up giving it to me, or if God were to take it away, I would quit following him? What is it that if God were to take it away, anything, if God were to take it away, or if he never gave it to me, this thing that I lack, what is it that would make you to quit following him? Whatever that is, you love that more than you love Jesus. Functionally, that is your savior. And there's another name for this. It's called idolatry. That thing is your idol. You're using God to get that thing. That thing is your God, and you are an idolater. You love that more than God. You love it more than Jesus. It is your God. It is the thing that you worship. The thing that you spend your time thinking about, you spend your money on, you give your energy to, that is your God, functionally. That is your God. And what's great, God gives us the trial of lowliness and riches because he knows we're idolaters, and he loves us, and he wants us to be freed from these idols. That's what trials are for. Trials are not for the mature. Trials are not for the complete and the perfect. Trials are for the underdeveloped, like you and I are. And we're all going to be underdeveloped until Jesus comes and makes us complete. There's one thing that Jesus does that idols can't and won't do. There's probably a lot of things, but for the purposes of our sermon here. Your idols can't, listen, your idols cannot give you eternal life. Jesus is worth your devotion. He is worth your trust. He is worth your love. Your idols cannot give you eternal life. Your idols cannot die for you. Your idols cannot take your guilt away. Your idols can't take your guilt 
your idols can't take your punishment upon themselves and take the punishment for you and give you their righteousness. Idols can't do that. Idols are nothing. They're just things. Jesus can. That's why he came 2,000 years ago, to save idolaters, to seek and save idolaters. Jesus is worth loving and trusting, and he's worth forsaking all of our idols. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would use this the trial of riches and lowliness to uncover the places in our hearts where we love other things more than you. And would you help us to repent and trust your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for Jesus.